We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. So for somebody like Musk, who really, really wants to go to Mars and who has repeatedly expressed contempt for, say, the Securities and Exchange Commission or Congress or individual politicians, they see all of that as just an obstacle. And so, you know, to the extent that Putin is willing to take on the Western establishment and has nuclear weapons, we think, maybe, that gives this, you know, this gold bug network an incredible amount of leverage to bring to bear on extracting uh, changes and concessions that they may wish to pursue. And I think that's basically what's going on. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Dave Troy, who's a researcher, technologist, and inventor who's interested in hybrid warfare and threats to democracy. And we discuss Dave's fantastic article about Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter titled, No, Elon and Jack are not competitors, they're collaborating. And we take a look at the ideology that may be behind Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter and how that aligns with other technologists and also Vladimir Putin and how that could potentially be a threat to democracy and to the US dollar. I hope you find this episode interesting. Just before we begin, we now have a YouTube channel I've been threatening it for a while and now we have it. So please follow the link below in the show notes and subscribe to our YouTube channel. On there are video versions of the podcast. So if you like to see a squiggly line with your interviews, you can now see a squiggly line on YouTube. If you wish to support the podcast, there are a few options for you. You can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show for £3 a month. We also have a merchandise store at Redbubble. We have cups, coasters, water bottles and tote bags all available on the Redbubble store. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please share it on social media among friends, family, colleagues, cohorts. And lastly, please leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help the show get discovered by other people. Apple Podcasts in particular love reviews and they really help this show get featured on the app. So please do leave a review. All the links are available in the show notes below. Thank you so much for your support. And without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. It's great to have you on. So for the benefit of the audience, please could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I am kind of a strange beast. I'm a technology entrepreneur who has, over the last uh, six years or so, entered the world of journalism. Uh, I would say somewhat reluctantly. I did not really intend to do this, but the, basically what ended up happening was I was studying 
uh, a lot of stuff having to do with social media data and community formation mm -hmm. and social media. And so that led me directly into the world of disinformation and political warfare, which had me collaborating with a lot of journalists for several years and kind of got to a point where some of the stuff that I was dealing with kind of needed to be told myself um, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, felt like the best way to do it was to kind of start doing some of my own writing. So that's kind of what's been happening mm. over the last year or so. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a fascinating area to sort of be writing and researching about. So I think you're perfectly placed, especially with your background. That's brilliant. Well, and I have, you know, besides from my tech background, I'm also, um, you know, went to school for history and liberal arts. So, you know, I did a lot of historical research in school and found that a lot of the things that I was interested in have come back to be, uh, you know, extremely useful now in, in researching mm. all this stuff. So being able to kind of do both data-driven analysis as well as historical you know inquiry and primary source research and all of that kind of stuff mm. has has been a nice confluence of skills <laughs> excellent excellent well look, i want to have a chat with you today about your fascinating article that you wrote titled no elon and jack are not competitors they're collaborating and this is obviously in response to elon musk's successful purchase of twitter right. so i suppose my first question is what was your reaction to the news of elon musk successfully buying and taking over twitter well so um ironically enough i was at the ted conference in Vancouver back in April when uh, Elon Musk, you know, it was the same day that it was announced that he was going to intend to purchase Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so I got to, I was sitting, you know, maybe 20 feet away from that interview with Chris Anderson talking about, you know, the intent to purchase and what his goals were and whatnot. And so I had a pretty mm -hmm. good idea, I think, of what, what he was trying to do just from that one incident. And, you know, that's discounting the fact that I've been kind of studying this network of people for several years. Mm. And um, so, you know, there was all the back and forth with him, you know, allegedly trying to get out of the deal and all the, you know, sort of drama around that. And a lot of people were speculating that, oh, no, he didn't really want to buy it. And it was all just, you know, foolishness and whatever. And I, having known these critters for a long time, uh, I had a pretty good sense that this was not just some kind of lark, that they were, in fact, trying to, you know, affect some fairly serious changes in global perception, if you will. So, you know, when this finally went through, my first thought was kind of, well, you know, I told you so. And then when he started making the kinds of changes that he was making and people were speculating about what that meant and whatnot, I just kind of had had enough. <laughs> I just was like, okay, mm, I have to mm. write something that uh, tries to help people understand a little bit of the bigger picture here. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a certain amount of speculation about what that bigger picture might be because you can't fully get into the heads of, of other people. But um, there is a lot of evidence that's factual that you can point to and say, well, you know, why would they do these things if they did not have some bigger plan in mind? So that's kind of the reason why that I mm -hmm. reacted in the way that I did with that piece and then it you know went crazy viral and whatnot so yeah well let's let's go into that piece because there's some really fascinating things in there so the first part of your article is a lot of people are obviously looking to leave twitter and they've been sort of searching for other platforms and jack dorsey the co-founder of twitter has announced a new platform called blue sky right and many have hoped that will be an alternative to twitter so what are your thoughts on blue sky and jack dorsey well i mean i've known jack since like 2007 and i met him at the twitter headquarters back when it was a little tiny office on South Park mm. uh, in uh, San Francisco, you know, 2007. And, um, you know, he's a really interesting and thoughtful guy, but he's also, you know, kind of pie in the sky. You know, he's, he's sort mm. of an idealist and has big ideas. Um, and they're very, you know, he's a designer kind of at heart. 
and and that's kind of how he sees the world. And so, um, you know, it's been well publicized that uh, he didn't feel like that Twitter should have been turned into a company, mm. you know, as it were. It, it, he felt like it was something more like a protocol um, or a public good mm. um, and felt like that that was the better way to kind of express the idea that he was trying to express with Twitter. And in the early days of Twitter, it was very much oriented around, you know, the API and the idea that people could plug into it and build things. And that was how I came to it. I was actually the first developer, external developer to use the Twitter API for something. I did a project called Twitter Vision that was a real-time visualization of tweets on a map, um, which was kind of a mashup of Twitter API and Google Maps API. And that was fun. That went really viral. And that was how I got to meet Jack and Ev and Biz and that that crew. But as Twitter developed and, you know, San Francisco venture capital scene being what it was at the time, they kept taking in more and more money in order to grow this thing because it was, you know, it sort of seemed like it was a thing, right? And even though mm. it was very tiny, much tinier than people perhaps realized between say like 2007 and 2010, I, I was actually for those, the, you know, three years or so getting uh, the entire fire hose of Twitter on a tiny PC, you know, in a data center with a, with a modest sized hard drive. And it, you were talking something on the order of, you know, maybe several megabytes worth of traffic per day. It was not huge at all. And it, it sort of gained more notoriety than it actually had usage. So anyway, they kept throwing money at it. And at some point, I think it was around 2014, I have to go look up because somebody was saying eight years the other day, um, was when it went public. And, you know, that's sort of the beginning of the end for a lot of things because, you know, mm. <laughs> the instead of trying to meet some technical mission or, you know, some user-oriented mission, you're suddenly oriented around shareholders. And um, I think that Jack found that very distasteful for his original vision. And, you know, there was a lot of back and forth with him personally with the leadership of Twitter where he was the CEO and then he was out and Dick Costello was in for a while and then he came back and then he was running Square and, you know, trying to sort of fashion himself as a bit of a Steve Jobs character. And I think all of that was kind of, you know, uh, manufactured to some extent. I mean, he's not that guy. Um, but at the end of the day, it got to a point where it was so huge and unwieldy and he's got you know how many employees were at twitter you know 7500 or whatever mm, the thing mm. seems like it's just gotten crazy out of hand and so for whatever reasons and you know we'll get into all of that um he seems to have thrown in his lot with elon to radically reorganize twitter and we, you know since i wrote that piece i think i wrote that piece two weeks ago we've seen more of what elon's plans are in terms of laying employees off and reorganizing the company and all of that so we know a little bit more about where it's heading but they they seem to be in lockstep and they they have been uh in co communication over the last several days about you know different things and certainly dorsey hasn't come out and said you know i don't like what elon's doing you know, the, the exact quote from Dorsey back in April was, Elon is the singular solution I trust. I trust his mission to extend the light of consciousness, which gets into long-termism and whatnot, which is a whole nother crazy topic. Well, yeah, yeah. So you, like in your piece, you argue that Musk's goals with Twitter are more ideological than financial. And that quote that you just mentioned there, I trust Musk's mission to extend the light of consciousness, 
it seems a bit wacky and a bit out there, doesn't it? So I suppose, can you talk to us about Musk's potential ideological roots? Yeah, so, um, you know, he, he's an interesting character, obviously, in his own right. And, you know, he's a South African immigrant and went to school in the U.S. and whatnot. Um, but, you know, his grandfather was a guy named Joshua Haldeman, mm. who was in Canada, Western Canada, in the 1930s and 40s. He was a chiropractor. And he was involved as a leader of something called the technocracy movement in Canada at that time. And it was kind of a, an emergent movement that started in the 1920s, I think, in, possibly in the teens, but in the wake of World War I uh, in the United States with the idea that industrial production would render uh, scarcity a thing of the past. And so they sort of derived a whole bunch of implications from that, one of which was that, you know, rather than having democracies per se, you should just sort of have technical managers and engineers that actually run society. And rather than using fiat currency or money, use what they called energy certificates as uh, kind of uh, an exchange of value. So basically saying, you know, this certificate is the same as, you know, I don't know, a thousand watts of or joules or whatever the right measurement is for power and, you know, make that be the basis of, of this new economy. And it was heralded by some folks out of Columbia University, as well as the, uh, you know, famous economist Torstein Veblen. And so a lot of people kind of signed on to this as a kind of vision of the future. And so Haldeman was involved in that, must probably knew about that through family and through just reading mm, and whatnot. Mm. But the thing that, you know, seem, he seems to have really latched onto is this philosophy called long-termism, which uh, is also related to another uh, idea called uh, effective altruism. And this has been something that's been kind of bubbling along in internet rationalist message boards, places like lesswrong.com, which are populated mostly by young men, mostly engineers, who are trying to sort of reason their way through how the world works. And, you know, so they come up with a lot of thought experiments about, you know, well, you know, what's the ethical thing to do in this? And it's sort of like dorm room philosophy combined with a kind of antisocial <laughs> event. And so just to be really blunt about it, you know, a lot of what effective altruism and long-termism land on as solutions are ways to be selfish in the near term so as to achieve goals that you think are going to optimize for things that you want to achieve long term. So for example, the idea of getting to be a multiplanetary species, which is something Musk is admittedly obsessed with. And the idea that charity in the short term on Earth, you know, giving somebody a blanket or giving somebody money, you know, in a developing country or something like that might not actually be that effective because, you know, it gets eaten up by the overhead of nonprofits and it goes to, you know, funding warlords or, you know, whatever. I mean, there's a lot of reasonable arguments for why standard models of charity are broken in, in pretty mm. obvious ways. But they kind of take that to a logical extreme and, and start saying like, oh, well, rather than, you know, fund these sorts of things, we should be doing these sorts of things, which will impact our future population of potential consciousnesses, which could include humans and artificial intelligence, in a billion years in space. And it's like, whoa, you know, that's a, a bridge too far. I always kind of laugh too, like, 
you know, imagine if you were trying to get a girl to go out with you or something and, you know, you're like, well, baby, you know, <laughs> the fate of a thousand billion consciousnesses in the future in space depends on it. You wouldn't want to put that at risk, would you? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like a ridiculous argument. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's basically the root of, of what, what we're talking about there. How widespread is this belief as in the sort of technical community, if I put it that way, or the developer community? And, and is this something Jack Dorsey kind of buys into himself? You know, it's interesting. Like, um, when I first met Jack, um, you know, back in 2007, um, I feel like he was pretty liberal in orientation um, and pretty progressive. And over the years, he's gotten more and more oriented with like Bitcoin and whatnot. And Bitcoin is kind of right adjacent to a lot of these, um, you know, libertarian, long-termist, effective altruist philosophies. Mm -hmm. And it's it's sort of also tied to, you know, objectivism. So like Ayn Rand and, you know, that whole set of philosophies. And it's it's, it's a very kind of market fundamentalist view of the world. Um, there's also um, another philosophy floating around near this called neo-reactionism, which is kind of a reactionary uh, traditionalist uh, philosophy. And then you have like the dark enlightenment, which is similar. And then you've probably heard of people talking about like the intellectual dark web, which is really talking mm, yes. about, you know, popular writers and podcasters, you know, sort of Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, um, you know, Lex Friedman, uh, Eric Weinstein, you know, all people in that milieu. And so between all of these different, you know, kind of related sets of ideas and, and networks, you have somebody like Dorsey, who sort of seems to have gotten sucked into that vortex for, for whatever set of reasons. And I, I don't pretend to know now what they might be. One thing to think about, and, you know, certainly your, your series kind of is touching on this world of intelligence, is that, you know, somebody like Dorsey is influential, he's powerful, he's got money, he's influenceable because, you know, he's, he's a pretty open guy and, you know, is open mm. to hearing new ideas and stuff. So it's possible that he was sort of recruited into this to sort of help drive some of this kind of activity. And if you think about Twitter as being a kind of neural network, which Musk himself has said, it's sort of like a global consciousness or a brain then you could actually use something like Twitter to kind of reprogram the consciousness of the world. And so it becomes an attractive target for capture, I think, by intelligence yeah. agencies and people with related agendas. And I think that's more or less kind of what we're dealing with here. Yeah, and there's one interesting thing that you bring up, well, many interesting things you bring up, but um, you mentioned the multipolar world, right. which is something that seems to be something Putin subscribes to. So there's some sort of convergence, and obviously you mentioned with the potential for misinformation and so on. Can you talk to us about how you think Musk might be interested in helping advance Putin's sort of idea of this multipolar world? And if you explain what that is for us as well. Yeah, sure. So this is something that um, Putin has been bringing up, you know, very often over the last several years, but particularly most recently at the Valdai Discussion Club, he made a speech mm. talking about, you know, the multipolar world. And basically what that means is a world in which the United States is not the sole hegemon. Um, and you've got uh, influence from China, Russia, Brazil, South Africa. So it's particularly the BRICS countries, you know, play heavily in Putin's vision there. And what they have been trying to do with that vision, and, and this is, you know, documented going back at least 10 years, is to push back against the dollar as the reserve currency, uh, to push back against central banks like the European Central Bank or the Japanese Central Bank, and to establish a global economic block within the BRICS countries, plus whoever else wants to join, 
to challenge the primacy of the dollar and do so based on currencies, perhaps metals backed tokens or, you know, whatever they're going to come up with uh, that are backed by, um, you know, like gold, copper, palladium metals. And this is something that's, you know, been well publicized by folks connected to the Kremlin. There's a Russian oligarch named Vladimir Potanin who has, um, he runs this Norlisk uh, nickel outfit that uh, has been talking about doing metals backed tokens. And the Kremlin has put some top people into that. Um, so, you know, that seems to be kind of what they intend to do. And so where, where this intersects is you have to go back and look at the history of the, the gold bug movement really in the United States and in, in Britain as well. You've got people like William Rees-Mogg and Jacob Rees-Mogg who have subscribed to this uh, in the UK. And basically it's, you know, the idea that when the US and, you know, other countries went off of the gold standard, uh, particularly in 1933, but then later in 1971, uh, you know, it created this kind of longstanding rift and resentment over currency. Mm. And, uh, you know, the idea is that all of this, you know, fiat currency that's created by central banks is really play money and it's not real. And it very much ties into a lot of the narratives that were first popularized or at least most recently, you know, popularized in the uh, Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a Russian text, basically arguing that, you know, there's a big giant, you know, conspiracy by a cabal mm. to control all the world's money. Mm. And so what what these folks, you know, like uh, the PayPal outfit, you know, the PayPal mafia group, you know, so that would be Musk and Teal and, and their uh, close associates and Putin have in common cause is that they both believe that's true. They both believe that there's this cabal that needs to be overthrown and to be replaced with this like hard currency. Now, you know, there's probably asterisks on that and details may vary, but overall they're aligned because they both believe that uh, these things are are fundamentally unhelpful. And mm. so for somebody like Musk, who really, really wants to go to Mars and who has expre repeatedly expressed you know, contempt for, say, the Securities and Exchange Commission or Congress or individual politicians, they see all of that as just an obstacle. And so, you know, to the extent that Putin is willing to take on the Western establishment and has nuclear weapons, we think, maybe, that gives this, you know, this gold bug network an incredible amount of leverage to bring to bear on extracting uh, changes and concessions that they may wish to pursue. And I think that's basically what's going on. Yeah. And so they want to use Twitter as a tool then for information warfare to basically sort of kill off the dollar. Is that right? And help push in sort of Putin's sort of multipolar world. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's generally kind of what's going on. You know, think about who's invested into this. You know, you've got the Saudis, you've got the Qataris, you know, you've got a, several of these kind of libertarian uh, right-wing businessmen that Musk has recruited. We don't really know the full investor list on the Twitter deal yet, but, um, you know, Musk and Dorsey, you know, certainly are big Bitcoin fanatics and literally think that Bitcoin is going to replace the dollar. I mean, you know, and Dorsey mm -hmm. has, within just the last year or two, uh, tweeted stuff like, you know, hyperinflation is coming. You know, like, dude, no, hyperinflation is when currencies, you know, devalue by like a thousand percent in a couple months. Mm. We don't have that. You know, we have high inflation, you know, 10, 14 percent. That's not great, but um, uh, it's not hyperinflation. So there's a lot of ideology that these guys seem to have baked in. And, and so the way I see the Twitter thing going right now 
is either A, and possibly both of these things are true, either A, he is seeking to kind of use it to conduct direct information warfare and to reshape kind of the consciousness of a lot of people. And, you know, like, so look at what he's doing with the blue check marks. Like, so he's going to take away the blue check marks from all of the sort of mainstream legacy journalists who have, you know, earned those by way of being important in the old world, let's say, Mm -hmm. and replace Mm -hmm. that with people who are paying $8. So there's a kind of a inversion of who's important in that and also a kind of weird egalitarianism that you could sort of argue comes from that, which, you know, it's sort of complicated. And then, so, you know, that could have a certain set of effects. The other thing though that he's doing is by radically restructuring the company and removing a lot of people and kind of tearing it apart limb by limb, he's effectively, you know, starting to destroy the company. Mm. And I, I would argue that the surge of popularity of things like Mastodon and other kinds of decentralized ideas also kind of serve the agenda that he has because effectively their argument that both Dorsey and Musk have is that this big centralized thing is ill-suited to the world that we want to be in that you know it's it's not fit for purpose in some ways Mm. and so and then that plays into this blue sky strategy of you know creating a protocol versus a company you know so it's a very kind of long-range vision and you can make an argument that like blowing up Twitter and decentralizing it through force could be seen as a kind of precursor to blowing up, say, the Federal Reserve and decentralizing it by force. And, you know, the way that these kinds of operations tend to work is, you know, there's usually kind of a um, a series of like staged uh, events. And I, I mean, staged in terms of stage, you know, literal stages, not something that's staged or made up. So if you think about Brexit, as a precursor to Trump, let's say, which Bannon said, you know, was explicitly his strategy, then I could see decentralizing Twitter as a precursor to decentralizing the Fed. And that's speculation on my part, but I think that that fits. And, and you know, again, some people are like, do you think they're really that smart to have this kind of like detailed plan? And, I, and my, you know, usual reaction is no, I don't know that they're that smart to have a detailed plan but I do know what direction they want to go in and I know Mm, mm. what their desire long-term is and, you know, how they get there, the specific moves they make on whatever day, who knows. But, uh, you know, it's, it's like being out in the woods or something and being able to follow the North star. As long as you've got a consistent direction, you're going to keep moving in a certain way, which gives some predictability to what we, you know, observe from them. Mm. How likely do you think it is that Musk and his friends can kind of pull off what you've outlined? Well, so I think, honestly, that there's a lot of miscalculation in this network. So, you know, remember, Putin thought his war in Ukraine was going to last like four days or seven days and that, you know, Kiev would fall and, you know, Zelensky would be out and they would take over and it's going to be great. That didn't happen. (laughs) You know, we're on day 280 or whatever of that war. And so that's dragging on. Uh, And, you know, Russia is is being crushed under the pressure of that. Mm. Likewise, in, you know, the United States, there was a thought that there would be a red wave of some kind on the elections in, you know, November 8th. That did not occur. Um, And uh, in fact, the performance of the Democrats uh, was the best for a midterm, you know, since JFK. So I think that they have misread the stars a bit Mm, with this. mm. And, you know, they thought that their moment had finally arrived. And the reason I think that they've misread the stars is because 
you know, all of these right wingers have kind of put themselves into an isolating information environment where they're kind of mm. listening to their own messaging mm. and yeah. they have convinced themselves of the correctness of their logic and they have eliminated signals that might give them pause in terms of moving forward on this stuff. So then they've kind of all gotten themselves into this, this mode where they think, okay, well, mm. this is the year, this is the year that it's going to happen. And we have everything on our side and we have to go for it. And so they're very much, you know, like a team that's out on the field trying to execute a set of plays that they just simply aren't equipped to execute on and to, to actually succeed with. And so I think that, um, you know, we will see a, a certain amount of falling short of this strategy, but it's kind of like, you know, the analogy I use is with January 6th, where that was a really dumb idea and um, mm -hmm. very unlikely mm -hmm. to succeed. But the very fact that they tried it caused an immeasurable amount of damage to the United States, to its reputation in the world, to our self-image, to just the sanity of the Republic. And we've also had to go back and do all the hearings to adjudicate all of that. So I, I'm, I'm not so concerned about they could, that they would succeed. I'm concerned about the damage that they could cause in the process of trying. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you've just touched on, I mean, as we've seen with an influx of disinformation and hate content online, it has real world consequences such as January the 6th, mass shootings and hate crimes. It could be argued that Musk's purchase of Twitter is a national security risk. Are governments paying attention to this? And obviously not just Musk, but other technologists around the world who've got similar ideas. I think that they certainly should be if they're not. Um, I, mm. I would have to think that it's at least being looked at. Somebody at a press conference last week asked President Biden if uh, Elon Musk represented a national security risk. And Biden's answer, which was very measured and considered, he said something like, well, you know, I think that that might be something that would be worthy of being looked at. And uh, so I have the feeling that he knew more about that than he was saying. Mm. But um, I think if there was nothing to it, I think he would have just said, you know, I'm not aware of any risks along those lines. So, you know, uh, I do think that people are looking at this. Um, the thing that I should also say is that uh, back in, you know, like 2020, I started to get signals that Musk was going to be a problem uh, because we were poking around in the bowels of a bunch of different, you know, information operations and seeing who was involved and whatnot. Mm. And, um, you know, I'll tell you just a little anecdote. I was uh, leasing a Volkswagen e-Golf for three years between 2017 and 2020, and it was coming up for lease renewal or, you know, expiration. And I kind of was looking at a Tesla and I thought, well, you know, it's a nice car. It's got twice the specs of the e-Golf and it's a pretty reasonable payment and all that. And so, uh, you know, I, I put in an order for the, the Tesla in something like, you know, July of 2020. Um, and sometime in August, I started to get information that indicated that Elon was a problem, <laughs> you know, um, and with like, you know, information that went back as far as like 2016, 2017. Mm, mm. And I said to myself, self, you know, you probably should not put the order in on the Tesla because in a couple of years, you're going to find out that this is he's a huge problem and you're going to have this Tesla and you're going to go, why did I do this? Um, and so I have this Tesla and I'm mm. going, why did I do mm. this? I should have listened to my mm. instincts. Um, but I say all that just to kind of suggest that, um, you know, we had information on this that that looked like it was going to be a problem. And the, the thing about working in kind of the 
research space, uh, you know, sort of on the layer underneath journalism is you get information that, you know, is of questionable veracity and value and all this kind of stuff. And so you're always mm -hmm. creating mm -hmm. weights about whether something is real or not. And the weight that I had on that at the time was something like, you know, 30, 40%. But it was still enough to cause me to ask that question. And then, you know, the way that we kind of were testing to see whether that was a thing or not was to watch the behavior of people like Musk and Dorsey over the course of the last two years. And what we found was that at every available opportunity, it just kept getting worse, <laughs> you know? And so like, okay. I was onto the idea that Musk was gonna be a huge problem by like February of 2021. And, you know, and then the suspicions just kept compounding and compounding. And now we see these big moves coming out um, and it's all but confirmed. So I think, you know, some people kind of think, oh, well, I'm just sort of extrapolating and, you know, how do we know? And it's like, well, we know because we've been watching this for several years, you know, and, and yeah. this is what we were guessing might happen as a worst case scenario. And now we're living it, <laughs> you know, yeah. so. May I ask, what kind of information operations were you looking into? Because I'm sure some audience members would be kind of like, when you mentioned that, be like, oh, what, what was that about? Yeah, so, um, you know, broadly speaking into QAnon, but, you know, really some of the adjacent characters to that, um, mm. you know, trying to understand some of the communications that was going back and forth. So there was a, a lot of stuff connected to like WikiLeaks and Vault 7, uh, to the Seth Rich thing, to Julian Assange, to Russia. Um, so that milieu of things and, you know, when in that mix you start seeing like, oh, you know, Elon says and Elon does and, you know, and then people amplifying Elon in certain ways at certain times with certain mm. kinds of messaging and it's all aligned. You, you develop this picture of like, well, it seems like it could be a problem. So that's kind of where we were, where we were prodding. Yeah, yeah. Did it, I, sorry, you just got me into an interesting mindset because of what we've been talking about with a lot of technology people and these beliefs. I've always been fascinated by the motivations of Edward Snowden yeah. and obviously Julian Assange and you've just mentioned Assange. I don't know if there's any kind of crossover with some of the things that we've talked about that with those characters as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, fraught terrain, obviously, uh, mm. you know, and I think that we just don't have enough information to really say for sure what was going on there. Mm. But, you know, if you want to develop, you know, like a worst case scenario picture, uh, the worst case is that those guys uh, were part of something intended to upend Western hegemony from the start. Mm. And there's some weird coincidences, like Snowden got information from a computer network that was overseen by the Defense Intelligence Agency, um, which is where Flynn was at that time. There's some possibility that, uh, you know, he had uh, information from people connected to Flynn to extract specific information through a specific channel, all of that. The fact that, you know, Snowden is now living in Russia and a Russian citizen and promoting Bitcoin and basically echoing everything that's coming out of Musk suggests to me that there's more to this. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, again, we don't know, but that's that's my guess. Now, and you know, with regards to Assange, I have the feeling with him, and this is just my opinion, I have the feeling with him that he may have started out in some kind of um, legitimate mode um, of wanting to do something honorable or to disrupt or what have you. And, and you know, I mean, I, I think one has to ask, you know, well, who is he to appoint himself to such a role? But anyway, mm -hmm. I think by 2010, when you get the, you know, rape allegations and whatnot, and I actually met Julian Assange at the TED Global Conference in Oxford back in like 2010, um, about two months, three months before the 
uh, rape allegations. And so it's possible that that was a situation where he was, you know, honeypotted or otherwise compromised and, and, you know, had some leverage brought over and which may have started to influence how he uh, responded to things. But, you know, by 2016, he's pushing the fake Seth Rich story for Russia. Mm. And so at some mm. point, he's clearly also in the bag for what amounts to the GRU. So I hope someday in the history books, maybe I'll even be involved in helping to dig up some of that history when the time comes. Yeah. Uh, but I hope someday we know the truth about all that because it is really weird mm. and it certainly points to a more coordinated operation than perhaps has been previously known. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you for that. One other thing that jumped out at me just in the last few days with this sort of Musk's obsession, I put I call it obsession, with his sort of mission to put a man on Mars or a person on Mars and his long-term as you've called it, Trump announced that he was going to run for president again. And he one of his campaign pledges was to put a person on Mars. I wondered if there was any kind of crossover with Musk and Trump. Yeah, I, you know, that's another one of those weird signals that you get and you kind of make note of it. And um, I think that that is notable. Mm. It's also worth noting that Musk and the other PayPalers have been... Um, you know, rallying around Ron DeSantis quite a bit over the last mm, several months. Mm, so mm. starting around June or so, I think Musk and David Sachs were both talking about how DeSantis was so great. It may, there may be a certain amount of plan A and plan B going on here. I mean, like nobody really knows what's going to happen with Trump. I I personally think he's kind of toast and was is likely to be indicted for something before he can, you know, actually run for president. But um, DeSantis, uh, I think fits the mold of kind of like what this younger generation is is hoping mm, to mm. you know have to drive their agenda forward and so you know i don't know i don't know whether you know the putting the flag on mars thing is, is some kind of dog whistle for musk or what have you but um you know definitely it's something that you know he he's obsessed with and uh sees this whole conflict as being centered around around achieving that within his lifetime which you know i mean he's basically my age so he's you know he's 51 i'm 50 about to be 51 uh and um you know that's aggressive you know you're talking about doing that in the next 25 years realistically mm-hmm. max because mm-hmm. you know he wants to be a 75 year old on mars <laughs> so <laughs> yeah yeah true true True. Well, one other thing as well with Musk, uh, he was also it was back in I think it was was it October he was his Starlink. Um, so he, uh, Musk has allegedly been providing Starlink to the Ukrainians, and, and there's some dispute about how much he has provided Starlink for free. Right. But he then threatened to turn the access to Starlink off in Ukraine, and then started trying to kind of come up with a peace plan that basically where the Ukrainians should sort of bow down to Putin. That was very interesting. I don't know if you have any kind of thoughts on that. Yeah, well, he and David Sachs and Jeffrey Sachs, who has been working with David Sachs, that's S-A-C-K-S in the case of David, and S-A-C-H-S in the case of Jeffrey, he's an economist, um, and and Musk have all been kind of pushing, you know, for resolution. Now, you know, this was all the while while Medvedev and, uh, you know, the other uh, Russian leadership uh, were saber rattling around nuclear weapons and everything. That seems to have subsided just a little bit while the whole Twitter fiasco has been going on. I feel like that they wanted to take some time to kind of let that do its thing and and also, Mm, uh, mm. you know, deal with the elections and whatnot. But I have a feeling that that messaging is going to start coming back. And with respect to Starlink, I mean, this is one of those things where I feel like that, you know, Musk 
has positioned himself in a lot of ways as a kind of a broker between parties. And by having that capability to provide, you know, the battlefield intelligence stuff to Ukraine and to be able to turn it off at a moment's notice, that puts him in a position of leverage with both sides, really. Mm. And, um, you know, how that came to be, you know, exactly, I think is, is kind of anybody's guess to some extent. But it's also worth looking at the history of, of SpaceX and how SpaceX came about. A lot of people don't know this, but the, the entire private space industry was made possible by enabling legislation that occurred in the late 1990s. So um, there was an, a bill that was sponsored, two bills that were sponsored by California Congressman uh, Dana Rohrabacher, who is both a whack job libertarian, you know, ideologue and very close with Putin. And that really is what made SpaceX possible. And, and Rohrabacher and Musk you know, friends and whatnot, and had a lot of photo ops together and would go to each other's birthday parties and stuff like that. So, you know, I think that that is rooted in in the desire to privatize the space system. Mm. And, you know, not for no reason either. I mean, if you look at what NASA was doing for launches back in the late 90s, it, you know, they had projects that were going to cost something like 30, 35 to $40 billion dollars. And private industry, you know, in the form of SpaceX and whatnot, was able to accomplish the same thing for like four. So you're talking like a 10x improvement in overall, uh, you know, capital efficiency. And so, you know, it's not crazy to want to privatize aspects of the space program. But when you think about kind of like how that in practice needed to be done, there needed to be a guy to do it. There needed to be some mm, mechanism, mm, some company that was mm, going to be, you know, mm. one of the major ones to take this on. They also benefited tremendously from tech transfer from NASA and things like that. So, you know, to some extent, you know, that makes Musk a kind of a made man in that, you know, he's kind of like selected by this libertarian enterprise to like extract this thing that had been kind of a cancer in government and turn it into this libertarian privately owned good. And, you know, that's not totally insane. Like, I get it. It kind of makes sense. But, you know, taken to its logical extreme where, okay, now we're going to do the same thing again and again and again with like all of government and privatize it and dismantle government. At what point does that become, you know, something highly anti-democratic and bad? And, you know, because I don't know that the same pattern, the same template that worked for NASA in the late 90s works for like, every other government agency, which is, I think, kind of where they're ideologically wanted to go. So just, you know, yeah. big picture view there. Yeah. Well, no, thank you very much for that. Well, look, Dave, thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything else you'd like to sort of talk about that's important to you that we haven't covered today? Well, one thing that I think is kind of interesting to look at, and this is something that I'm uh, researching and writing about right now, um, is this idea of the noosphere. And this is it's spelled N-O-O-S-P-H-E-R-E, literally means knowledge sphere or mind sphere. And this was an idea that was first put forth by really three men, a guy named Vladimir Vernadsky, mm -hmm. uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who was a Catholic Jesuit priest, and a Frenchman named Edouard Leroy. And they pioneered this concept. They met together in Paris in 1922 because they were all kind of thinking about this idea. And the idea of it was that um, the Earth was kind of going through some phases. Um, the first phase being the geosphere, which is the raw Earth with like rock and water and chemicals and stuff on it. 
The second phase is the biosphere, which is the living earth with plants and animals and whatnot on it, humans. And then the third phase would be noosphere. Mm. And the idea of that is that the consciousness that is made possible by humans um, and I suppose other intelligences would all sort of link together into one earthwide consciousness that would be global in nature. And uh, when that transition occurred, it would be a kind of evolutionary step. It would be a a uh, clear marker that the earth had shifted into another uh, form. And so what ended up happening with with this idea was that uh, Vernadsky popularized it in in Russia and Ukraine in particular, because he was Ukrainian and went back and forth between Russia and Ukraine. And Teilhard de Chardin, or Teilhard as most people call him, his ideas became very influential in the United States and in Europe mm-hmm. in particular. Mm-hmm. And, and so this would have been like around 1955 to 1965 was when his ideas, Teilhard's ideas really started taking hold. So what this set up was kind of like the new age movement, really, because it, it implied this evolution towards higher consciousness and to ascension. And it, so it ends up merging to some extent with ideas from theosophy and, and, you know, some of these Eastern religions and kind of gets this big syncretic mess. So anyway, the reason that this is important is because that set of philosophies, Russian cosmism is really what, what this is called, uh, you know, at root. So like Vernadsky was a Russian cosmist and he borrowed ideas from another guy named Fyodorov. And Fyodorov, you know, who lived prior to Vernadsky, you know, around the turn of the century, theorized that the it, it is the responsibility of the living to resurrect the dead. And the problem with resurrecting the dead, if you were successful at this, is you have a storage problem because where are you going to put them all? <laughs> you know, so therefore, there is a mandate to colonize space and uh, you know, to extend the light of consciousness, if you will, out into space. So for whatever set of reasons, this long-termist philosophy that Musk landed on by way of the channels through which he reached it um, is very, very, very similar to Russian cosmism and to this concept of the noosphere and its roots. Putin, in turn, has stated multiple times that the noosphere concept is his model, his policy model for sustainable development. Um, He has also uh, stated publicly many times that the country that can dominate in the field of artificial intelligence will rule the world. He has also stated many times that uh, love is the basis of his policies. Now, I think the Ukrainians would beg to differ, but um, love is a core concept of this noosphere idea and is very much articulated by folks like, you know, Teilhard and and Vernadsky. This brings us to... um, you know, the overlap with the New Age movement and why stuff like QAnon actually does have a significant resonance in the New Age world is because it's positing this kind of New Age eschatological uh, consciousness and a shift to higher thinking. All of that kind of of stuff is baked in. And lastly, uh, in 2016, Putin appointed as his chief of staff a guy named Anton Vaino, who claims to have invented a nooscope which is a device that he claims to have developed that uh, you know, can actually measure uh, the transition to the noosphere and, and towards what 
Teilhard described as the omega point. Um, so there's a lot of whacked out woo in here. And of course, anybody familiar with intelligence circles knows that woo and intelligence world go together like hand and glove. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Um, so uh, I think that that's sort of, again, you know, the direction in which Putin is is heading with this is like, he sees this noosphere concept as he has glommed onto it and kind of co-opted it as being an alternative vision to what he sees as a kind of straitjacketing um, that has, you know, resulted from Westphalian sovereignty and that sort of thing. Mm. So, you mm. know, this is an alternative view of how the world could be, a multipolar world, if you will. Mm. Mm. So I think that's kind of the big picture. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen that, certainly you mentioned the crossover, the new age movement and conspiracy theories. I mean, you know, you see people like Alex Jones, David Icke, yep. um, you know, there's obviously QAnon people. And then there's a lot of people who are into sort of yoga that, and, anti, and the anti-vax movement during kind of COVID and stuff that's sort of starting to kind of all kind of converge together and become these sort of strange bedfellows. Yep. It's, it, and, you know, and it's connecting like the far right with the far left. Well, and, and look at how, you know, like Dugan describes the war as being a conflict between Eurasia and Atlantis. Mm. And, you know, the, mm. you know, Shambhala and all of this. So Shambhala being the mythical, you know, land of Eurasianism where, uh, you know, enlightenment is found. I mean, all of that ties into the yoga stuff. And so that gets you into Agni Yoga, Nicholas Rarick and, and all of that strain of Russian thought. And so it, what I would just argue is that um, Putin's a little bit like a cafeteria Catholic where he is basically selecting any kind of philosophies that he can that can help to create linkages into the Russian population so that they will kind of buy into this. So that includes the noosphere concept. It includes Eurasianism. Uh, it includes the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, it includes ideas about, say, you know, Stalinist Russia. It includes ideas about Imperial Russia and Catherine the Great and the Romanovs and all of that. So, um, and I think some of that comes from Dugan. I think others of it is just kind of tapping into the folklore of, of the Russian mm. state and Russian mm. history. Mm. Um, so it's all of the above. And for whatever reason, it seems like Musk and his, his PayPal friends are also on board with this so as to upend central banks. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. For that. Is there any anything else you'd like to add? Um, any any thoughts on how I suppose listeners or us as individuals can kind of steal ourselves for this sort of situation and and maybe uh, try and sort of stop it in our own way? I suppose gaining an accurate awareness of what's going on or what could be going on is important. Mm. And again, you know, we don't know this with one hundred percent certainty, but you know, evidence keeps stacking up. Let's put it that way, and has been for a few years now. So um, the thing that has me concerned right now is that the United States is, um, you know, on track to need to uh, raise its debt ceiling in January. And this is a, a self-imposed limit on our national debt that, um, you know, we have placed in order to just, you know, provide some sense of fiscal discipline or whatever. And, you know, that's fine, except that we need to raise it because otherwise we're not going to pay our bills and we're going to default on our debt. And that's going to create a lowering of the U.S. credit rating, which is going to in turn affect the dollar, which is going to spark a massive global financial crisis. In general, U.S. politicians have never wanted to 
do this because it would be so damaging. However, the last time it was tried was in 2011 by Kevin McCarthy, who was the Speaker of the House at the time. And now it's 2023, or will be soon, and Kevin McCarthy is now the Speaker of the House, or very likely will be now that the Republicans have taken the House. And many Washington analysts are predicting that they are going to try to default on the debt, you know, in exchange for concessions on Medicare and Social Security and this sort of thing. Mm. That is going to be a non-starter for Democrats because Democrats won't compromise on those items, uh, which means that also, you know, possibly aid to Ukraine could be at risk. Um, And uh, so, you know, all of these things would be wins for Putin because they create craziness. And these are things that the libertarian far right are aligned with. Um, And, you know, this aligns with what Musk and, you know, Dorsey and everybody else seem to want to do in terms of challenging the dollar. So I think we need to get real realistic about that real fast. Uh, You know, the the lame duck period, you know, the, the little tail end of Congress here. Uh, that lasts through the end of uh, calendar year 2022, they have an opportunity to potentially address this by eliminating the debt ceiling, and that could be useful. Um, but if the worst case, let's let's paint the worst case scenario for January. The worst case scenario for January is that, uh, you know, the debt ceiling is not raised. Let's say that uh, Putin decides to do a demonstration of force with a nuclear weapon or an experimental weapon of some kind that puts everybody on edge. Mm -hmm. Let's say that Xi decides to start making moves against Taiwan. And, uh, you know, you've got basically then a perfect storm. And let's say that Elon does something more insane with Twitter, you know, just to add that to the mix. You've got a perfect Mm -hmm. storm of craziness going on. Let's say that, you know, because there's no more blue checks of trusted journalists, there's all these, you know, more, more uh, impersonation and fraud and whatever else. And, you know, you saw the other day where just people playing around with like Eli Lilly accounts, you know, they took off like 5% of their market cap, like $20 billion or something just by way of a piece of misinformation. So, you know, we, we could have a very, very talk. That's, you know, like looking at the worst case scenario, I think we could have a very toxic uh, situation on our hands in January. Oh, and you combine that with all the chaos in the UK, uh, you know, both from a governmental as well as budgetary standpoint, um, you know, you could have a major financial crisis being sparked both in the UK and in the US simultaneously that could lead to all sorts of ripple effects that people can't predict, which, you know, if I were Putin, that would be what I would want to spark. Um, so the, the key in my mind is making sure that that can't be sparked. Yeah, well, that helps Putin, in a sense, win the war in Ukraine, doesn't it? Because then we all end up distracted yeah. trying to sort out our financial problems and we're no longer able to give aid to Ukraine and so on. And- yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the key thing. Like if, if the US and UK and the rest of Europe are no longer able because of internal chaos uh, or, let's say, popular revolt because people are concerned about food and heat and things like that, yeah. you know, we just won't be able to give aid to to Ukraine and then he can potentially make much more progress than he's made so far. I mean, arguably the only reason, I mean, not the only reason, but a major reason why we, you know, uh, Ukraine was able to retake Kherson uh, was uh, because uh, of, you know, HIMARS and other Western weapon systems Mm, and support, mm. intelligence support, things like that. Now, I guess we can continue to provide intelligence support, but if we can't provide weaponry, Mm. uh, that's going to be a serious issue. So, you know, that's to me what we need to be watching out for in 2023 is efforts that would advance 
plans to destabilize the dollar and to disrupt aid to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope if anybody in the intelligence community is listening, I hope they're paying attention to that. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so, too. And all I can say is that I think that the intelligence community has been broadly aware of a lot of this stuff Mm -hmm. for like the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. But as always in government and in any institutions, you're dealing with factions, you're dealing with matters of the rule of law. And just because something is bad doesn't mean it's illegal or a chargeable offense. And so, you know, there's a lot of waiting around until, you know, the right moment comes to charge people with things. And sometimes that's too late. And uh, I hope that we don't have that situation brewing. But I do think that people just being broadly aware of, of kind of like what's at stake here, what's in play does help because it helps to change the popular discourse from being like, oh, ha ha, look at Elon, look at how dumb he is, mm. to being more like, nah, actually, no, this poses a real serious risk. And, and I think that's a much more beneficial conversation to have. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people are focused on the business side of it, thinking that he's just making poor business yeah. decisions. But yeah. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I talk about this in your article some, uh, you know, the amount of money that they paid was a lot. They overpaid. It's kind of a dumb business. It doesn't seem like it's going to, you know, pay off from a business perspective. But if your goal is to like upend the global economy and re- reshape the world order, then it doesn't matter what it costs. Also, if the deal is denominated in U.S. dollars and you think that the U.S. dollar is about to be worth a lot less, then it doesn't matter how many mm. you pay because mm. they're worthless. Mm. Um, now, again, you know, whether that's true or not is totally up to, you know, we'll see how that goes. But, you know, if, if you believed that, then it wouldn't matter what you paid for it. It's borrowed money. It's, you know, not your, the banks are already saying they're going to take a haircut. So, you know, it really didn't matter what the price was. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, Dave, thank you very much for your time today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Yeah, the easy thing to do is to check out um, Dave Troy. That's D-A-V-E-T-R-O-Y.com. Uh, I've got links to a bunch of different projects, including my own podcast, which is called Dave Troy Presents, as well as writing that I do at Washington Spectator. I've got a medium blog. I've got a mailing list. I'm, I've got a mastodon site that i set up for some folks to try out so if you want to get onto mastodon and check out the decentralized social media world you can do that that site is called toad t-o-a-d dot social yeah yeah and can people still find you on twitter yeah i'm at dave troy on twitter too i'll be there until they throw me on yeah me too (laughs) well thank you again for joining me today it's been great thank you chris it was great to be here This is Secrets and Spies. 